10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Super. So here we go. I am Richard Bolsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 25th of July. That's before we delve into some of the history of the town where today's show is taking place. We are in Berkshire's county town, 40 miles west of London, but at present it might as well be in subtropical South Sahara or somewhere. Uh, but yes, we are in Reading! So our venue for the show is the Three Guineas, a grade two listed building and Fuller's pub, designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, which was originally the ticketing office for Reading Station on the Great Western Line. The Three Golden Guineas was the prize given out for the successful naming of a locomotive which ran from London to Plymouth on the line, the Riviera Express. Both the pub and the station were recently upgraded. The basement has been converted into a cellar bar in which Isambard's original brick-built arches are visible. Unless you're on the podcast. Uh, and we are performing today as a show in the Reading Fringe Festival. The festival aims to support local emerging artists, provide an affordable platform for artists travelling to the Edinburgh Fringe, and to welcome exciting, vibrant acts to the town from all over the world. Uh, but then there's this panel tonight, who are local. So let me introduce them, please. Welcome Seamus Allen. Yay! Terry Dixon. Chris Riley. And Izzy Lawrence. Further ado, our first guest tonight is Seamus Allen. Now, Seamus is both an actor and improviser. He is head of acting at Reading College. Oh, uh, Reed College, Reed. Oh, sorry? Reed College. At Reed, not Reading College. At Reed College. We have, like, a, we share a name, but that kind of, you know, ends up a kind of, we do performing arts, so it's like, you know, um, it's, it's deep kind of dance-offs that we do. So it's okay. Reed College, not Reading College. Right, okay. Uh, you, you kind of introduced yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but there was, there was one, one fact you gave me in advance, and I'll share that with the audience. So you have helped to give young children a fear of clowns. Thanks. Yes. Uh, thanks to your performance as Marvin the Clown on the CBBC programme Bear Behaving Badly. Yes. Um, no lines and I had to play a psychotic clown for children. Uh, which still resonates today. I go in and I have pupils that just, you'll see that little moment where they'll talk to me and then they'll go, Oh God, it's him. <laughs> which is fun. But anyway, over to your topic, please, for the 25th of July. So, yes. Um, hello, hello, welcome. Um, so, on this... <laughs> this is a depressing. Um, on this kind of this time of you know authoritarian governments and you know dictators coming in, I thought we'd have fun with looking at a huge example of well, post-truth news and basically almost post-satire, because this is a story of an authoritarian dictator who literally changed. Well, he changed the Communist Party. He did something which ended up ending the Cold War and also kind of basically destroyed Soviet Russia, which I can't actually have as part of this story, which is fascinating, but it's too long. And he did all this through having a bit of a swim. So, in, genuinely, on this day, and actually no, on this day in 1966 was the first reporting of Chairman Mao's swimming of the Yangtze River. Now, the reporting is important. The event happened nine days earlier, 16th of July. And 16th is a big day in China. It's celebrated every year by people swimming the Yangtze. And it was the beginning, basically, of the Cultural Revolution in China. Now, 
the Yangtze is about 15 kilometers long. And at that time, Chairman Mao was 73 years old. So this kind of older, podgy man, if you've ever seen photos of Chairman Mao, he's kind of, you know, archetypal dictator body. Um, <laughs> made of pudding. So it's, um, so he decided on this day to reinvigorate the culture, the, 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 the communist party, and to kind of, he felt it had gone too decadent. And he did this big machismo move. Him and 5,000 of his followers, uh, with six floating bodyguards, which I just love the idea. I don't know whether they were inflatable or not. <laughs> and seven massive posters of his face, because a dictator does love a selfie, swam across the Yangtze River for him to begin his cultural, uh, cultural revolution and also to kind of to, to, to make his stake as a real man of the people. A kind of, uh, he became a great helmsman, which to a degree I kind of appreciate that like, there was a time when we picked our dictators from their kind of pure masculinity, and not you know just because they can you know conjugate Latin verbs as we seem to get our authoritarian <laughs> leaders now. Um, he's prime minister at the moment. Um, um, no, his name should not be mentioned because if you do, he appears. Uh, it's a panel show. Genuinely, he'll be here. Um, all right. So and, and you kind of I miss that. I, you know you kind of want the feeling of like there should be dictator Olympics where they kind of have to fight it out. We know there's only ever going to be one winner, Vladimir Putin, because the man, like, he's a professional judo. He, he wrestles bears for his living. Wrestles bears and makes love to horses. <laughs> Not because he wants to, but because he can. <laughs> Even though, you know, the idea of a dictator Olympics, the, the concept of having, you know, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump in Speedos, I, I think that's, I think biblically that's what's supposed to kick off the apocalypse. Um, anyway, Chairman Mao swims the Yangtze River, and it's 15 kilometers fast flowing river. It's a marathon swim, and he does it in 65 minutes, which is impressive. It's more than impressive, it's phenomenal. Um, the world's press, the way they kind of reported it, and I'm paraphrasing now, is Bullshit. <laughs> 65 minutes for 15 kilometers. That boils down to three meters a second. Yet again, some of you have seen the pictures of Chairman Mao. Three meters a second is what he felt. Oh, Boris is coming. Uh, three meters a second. To put that into context, in 2012, a chi the Chinese won gold at the Olympics for the 1500 meters swim. So uh, Yang Sun was a competitor. And he did 1,500 meters, not only winning gold, but breaking the world record. Took him 14 minutes and 37 seconds. He was basically swimming at one meter a second. <laughs> so this young man at the prime of his athletic life, swimming flat out against other young men at the prime of their athletic life, was still three times slower than a small, podgy 73-year-old. Yeah, so it's, it, it, but it goes around the world, and everybody is, the, the world is, is completely rolling their eyes at this. This, this. this great feat that Chairman Mao has purported to do. And to a degree, actually, a lot of them say it's, um, it's fake. It's fake news, that it never really happened, which it did. Uh, you can see the footage of it. There was a film made about it, which you can find on YouTube, which we all know is the source of truth and veracity. 
and I found it through Wikipedia, the other soul kind of path for the truth. Um, and yeah, like as I've said before, German man, he did not have, you know, the classic athletic body um, or athletic body at all. He, he kind of, he really kind of rocked the dictator sheep, chic, that kind of, you know, he got mesomorphic, endomorphic, he was dictomorphic. Or just he looked like a dick. Um, he kind of felt like, you know, yeah, you could build a perfect snowman and he would be that shape. It's kind of the stay puffed marshmallow man with bad hair. Just every single authoritarian. I don't know why they all have terrible hair, by the way. They have money. You could just get a nice haircut. Um, he did actually swim and he got across the, the river. Um, and it's when you watch it, you can obviously go, well done him, but you immediately. So Irish, well done you. <laughs> Go on, have your cultural revolution. Look at you, I, mean, I couldn't do that. My mother couldn't do that, so you win. Um, you see his, his style of swimming does not in any way make you confident that he made it in this time. It wasn't so much a kind of a streamline coursing across the water. It was more like drowning forward. Um, it's kind of reminiscent of like, when dads go on holiday, and after a bottle of sangria decides to get into the sea to show the young kids how they used to swim in their day, it's kind of a one-armed clawing back of the water, and then just lying on his back, looking at the sun, kind of like a, 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 an apathetic seal. Um, however, he does cross the water. There was a great um, reason given why he, he potentially did it in 65 minutes from the uh, Cultural Board of China, which was that he was a, a super normally buoyant. <laughs> which I love. It's kind of like what a mother says to an overweight child. <laughs> you know, get in there, it's all right. No, you'll be fine. You're, look at you, I'm normally buoyant. I'm sure like either a mother or, you know, a, a medical inspector that has to talk to a dictator with a gun to his head. <laughs> uh, yes, you'll be perfect. You're, you're not fat, you're buoyant. Um, but he did get across. He made it across with his, uh, with his entourage of 5,000 people. And yet he becomes the strongest leader in China. He reasserts his... I know you like it. It's shocking, but true. Um, so much so that actually swimming becomes synonymous, synonymous with leadership in China. All the great leaders, if you look this up, they all show their prowess through swimming at, at one stage or another. Um, to a degree, and I can't put it in this story, through swimming and a swim-off, he basically destroyed Khrushchev and Russia. It's a I would love to tell that story as well, because also Khrushchev is a funny little character who has mad ideas and says weird things and still got to be prime minister. Sorry, leader of Russia. <laughs> um, they do come around again and again. But he does get to be this kind of great leader. And swimming becomes so synonymous with um, you know, Chinese power that actually, a common euphemism for meeting, for kind of clandestine meetings with Chairman Mao is, I'm going to the swimming pool. Saying I'm going to the swimming pool is a meeting with Mao. It would be kind of like if you're in Westminster today and you kind of went, you know, I'm going to punch a pauper. It means you're going to meet with Boris Johnson. Or, I don't know, if you want to meet with Jeremy Corbyn, you'd probably say, I'm, I'm, I'm not discussing Israel. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the Lib Dems have a kind of a really subtle, kind of clear, Kind of, you know, oh, for clandestine meetings, to meeting with their leader, like, please come and meet our leader. She's free. Do you want to come? We can come to you. It'll be fine. Anytime. Let's go for us. Please. We're here. Um, but yes, so that one event, that, and also particularly the reporting of that event, 
is something that just had such a huge knock-on effect in regards of propaganda and the ending of Russia's, um, uh, Russia's kind of Soviet system. Please look that up because it's always hilarious. But so yes, on this day in 1966, with the first reporting of Chairman Mao's amazing swim across the Yangtze River. Thank you very much. It was 465 years ago today, on 25th of July, 1554, that Mary I married Philip II of Spain at Winchester Cathedral. On the 6th of July of the previous year, her brother Edward VI had died from a lung infection, possibly TB, aged 15. Lady Jane Grey had been briefly proclaimed queen by her supporters, but was deposed after nine days by people who preferred a good English breakfast tea. <laughs> On becoming the first undisputed English reigning queen, Mary looked for a Catholic husband with whom she could have children and prevent her younger half-sister Elizabeth, a Protestant, from becoming queen after her death. Now she decided on her cousin Prince Philip of Spain, who was son of the Holy Roman Emperor and King of the Spanish Kingdoms, Charles V. So Charles ceded to Philip the crown of Naples, as well as his claim to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, in order to elevate Philip to the same rank as Mary. Therefore, Mary became Queen of Naples and the titular Queen of Jerusalem upon marriage. Yeah, it's really true. Hey. <laughs> it's really true, yeah. Oh. Good. Uh, tune in, come on. Um, uh, Mary's marriage to a non-English Catholic was so unpopular that insurrections broke out. Their wedding took place just two days after their first meeting, and Philip couldn't speak English. So they spoke in a mixture of Latin, Spanish, and French. So probably quite confusing. Mary tried to explain she didn't want to keep things as they were, and Philip thinking they were discussing tastes in music. So no status quo. Embarazoso, oui, je suis d'accord. All matters of state had to be made in Latin or Spanish for Philip's benefit, and acts making it high treason to deny Philip's royal authority had to be passed in Ireland and England. They were only married for four years, during which time Mary bore no children, even though she was desperate to have them, even to the extent of her having a phantom pregnancy. Uh, she died in 1558 and Elizabeth took the throne and Philip had no wish to sever his ties with England and sent a proposal of marriage to Elizabeth, but as we all know, she didn't accept. Uh, of course, by 1588, England and Spain were at war and the ill-fated Spanish Armada set sail. So, on to our second guest, Terry Dixon, who I met today earlier on. So, uh, since retiring as a project manager, Terry has been running Terry's Walkabout Tours in Reading, and I had the pleasure of taking uh, one of those tours this morning. Uh, they've taken the local sites and include inf informative history, um, in taking in the Glorious Revolution, Reading Goal, Local Abbey, etc. And in the process, he's not only raised the profile of Reading, but also raised uh, thousands of pounds for local charities. So, over to you, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everybody, on the 25th of July, 1909, that French aviator, Louis Blériot, flew across the English Channel in a very basic monoplane. He travelled from Calais to Dover, being the first person to fly the Channel in 37 minutes. I don't know about you, but it often takes me far longer than that to get to London. <laughs> he pocketed £500 from the Daily Mail, and he became a celebrity overnight. At the end of August in 1909, 
He came second in the first ever Gordon Bennett airplane race. <laughs> Which leads me into an interesting tangent. I love history because when you're researching something, you get this opportunity every now and then, not only to go off at right angles, but sometimes 360 degrees. So here we go. Many of us may well have used that euphemism. Gordon Bennett, which is used mainly to express incredulous surprise. Which, unlike a lot of these sayings, is based on a true person. Did you know that? It alludes to the outrageous behaviour of American sportsman, publisher and all-round hail-raiser, James Gordon Bennett Jr. Who, as far as I know, is not related to a Boris. Yeah. <laughs> Which leads me off into another interesting tangent. <laughs> Have we all heard of minced oaths or minced words? You know, when people say, don't mince your words or beat about the bush. No, that isn't one, but it's an interesting one to follow, but it has a rather rude ending. <laughs> <laughs> they, they date back to the time and place when it wasn't acceptable to use God, Jesus, or any other religious notable in everyday speech. Anybody remember language, Timothy? That lovely, sorry, 1980s TV sitcom? Didn't matter whatever Timothy opened his word, his father always said to him, language, Timothy. So, what are the ones we all use? And do you know where they come from or what they mean? Bejeebus or bejeebus? By <laughs> Jesus. Blimey. Blind me. Or core blimey. God blind me. Crikey. That means Christ. Or drat. God rot it. Flaming or flipping heck. Effing in hell. I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> but crying out loud, that just means Christ. Or gee whiz, Jesus. And you're no the pop group, Judas Priest, that also means Jesus. Struth means God's truth. And the one I love best, because I've got young grandchildren. Every time I hit my finger with that proverbial hammer, it's sh sugar. <laughs> when well, we all know what it should be. <laughs> Plus, there's that lovely rhyming Cockney slang. One you may not have used, but you might want to use next time. Jesus and rice. Jesus <laughs> Christ. And whatever you do, do not call anybody a burk. <laughs> <I know that>. <laughs> <laughs> Berkeley Hunt and what about cartoons who used to watch Sylvester and Daffy Duck yeah. what did they used to say suffering succotash meaning suffering saviour and what about me well I was brought up on the TV of the 70s and 80s, all double meanings and innuendo. So if you get a chance, dig some of them out, go back and see what they were really saying, because it went over our heads when we were kids. We just laughed when everybody else laughed. And of course, more modern, you might remember Norman Stanley Fletcher. What was his favourite saying? Naff off. Naff off. I'll let you work out what that one means. 
Finally, very fitting, two things to finish on, because I'm going to stick to my five-minute chamber. Oh, Back to the concept of flying. Well, let's face it, it was never going to take off. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Who would want to fly to the sun in the Mediterranean when exactly 110 years later it's 36 degrees in Reading? <laughs> but finally, I must finish with something because we are in Reading, we are in Berkshire, and we have a very, very unique word, don't we, people? We don't call a wood lice a wood lice. What do we call it? Cheese With a bit of enthusiasm. What do we call it? Thank you, Richard. That's a pleasure, Terry Dixon. So that, that might set off some discussions in the audience. Uh, 25th of July, 1894, was the birth date of Gavrilo Princip. So while still only 19 years old, he fired two shots at the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and his wife Sophie, killing them both. Now I don't know if he felt any remorse, but we know this slightly changed the course of history. Uh, a European conflict was started in which 40 million people died, three monarchies fell, and an entire continent was left shattered. Except that, Princip, uh, himself died of TB in 1918 before the war had ended. He had been sentenced to 20 years in prison in 1914 for the assassinations. He had not been executed because he was not then yet 20 years old and was therefore too young under Austro-Hungarian law. So he was born on this day 125 years ago in the hamlet of Obliac in Bosnia. He was an only surviving child of poor peasants, a small and sickly boy, something which seems to have given him the feeling he somehow needed to prove himself. Now, Princip's mother, Maria, wanted to name him after her late brother, Spyro, but he was named Gavrilo at the insistence of a local Eastern Orthodox priest who claimed that naming the sickly infant after the Archangel Gabriel would help him survive. Princip fervently believed that Serbia, as the free part of the South Slavs, was obligated to help unify the Southern Slavic peoples as an independent nation. Contact with a secret society called the Black Hand radicalised him. Incidentally, the society had also initially dismissed him as being too small and weak to be of any use. The Black Hand resented the fact that the Serbian government had allowed Austria-Hungary to annex Bosnia-Herzegovina. So when Princip read in a Belgrade newspaper that the Archduke would be visiting Bosnia, along with the route the Royal Motorcade would be taking through Sarajevo, he and four co-conspirators plotted an assassination attempt on the Archduke. Now, on the day, they took a positions armed with bombs and pistols. One threw a bomb, but that bounced off the Archduke's car, while all the other assassins just bottled it. But later on, the driver of the royal car took a wrong turn, not realising that the itinerary had changed. So he tried to turn around. It just so happened that Princip was at a cafe opposite when this happened. So he went over and fired those fatal shots into the royal car. Incidentally, the Archduke's car had a registration number, which was A, 111118, which some have now interpreted as meaning A for Armistice Day, the 11th of the 11th, 18. The house where Princip was born used to be a museum, but was burned down, leaving just a stone basement where the family kept their livestock. 
So, on to our third guest. Now this is... Uh, <laughs> yes. no, I always think about these segues, so I think it'll make sense. Now your segue is, is going to be even more interesting. <laughs> I can guarantee that. So our third guest, anyway, is uh, Chris Riley, who is a Reading-based comedian. Chris is an improviser and stand-up comedian. He previously lived in Reading for 11 years. Member of the Free Radicals improv team and uh, What's the Game house troupe here in Reading. And runs monthly comedy nights at uh, Ninja Duck Comedy, I believe. So, over to you. Thank you very much. So I think this is appropriate. Oh, hello. Um, so I think this is appropriate as we are in the cellar of a railway station. But on this day in 1814, George Stevenson revealed to the world his first steam locomotive. And remarkably, 205 years to the day later, I had to stand on Chiltern Railway's diesel train with no air conditioning while the driver complained there were too many of us on board on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> Truly a fantastic future the father of the railways could hardly have fathomed. <laughs> so, what do we know of this first engine? Well, uh, it was uh, renamed at one point Blücher, after the Prussian general Gebhard Leberecht von Blücher, who, after a speedy march, arrived in time to help the British defeat Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. And surely no one who witnessed the first journey of this mighty engine could miss the comparison with a charging army as it hauled 30 tonnes of coal at four miles an hour up a gradient of no more than one in 450. <laughs> Unfortunately, on this momentous first journey, due to the wrong type of leaves on the line, the engine was replaced by a row replacement horse and cart. <laughs> So, a top speed of four miles per hour and unable to climb a hill, Bücher is still more likely to be able to reach Birmingham from London by 2026 than HS2, <laughs> despite having been recycled for parts a year after its creation and being described as less efficient and more costly than the 14 horses it was built to replace. <laughs> uh, I want to thank Richard for the opportunity today to talk about trains. Uh, this podcast is a great platform to do it, and I am, thank you, yeah, I am just signalling my intention to lots of puns now, it only gets worse. Uh, I promise I will conduct myself properly, but when I do get on the right track, uh, I can tend to get tunnel vision. <laughs> Well, maybe you don't like puns, and that's okay. Uh, sometimes it can be hard to change people's minds. Like when I worked uh, in a bakery with my colleague, Linda. Uh, she was from Liverpool and kept insisting that we had balm cakes in our inventory. No, I had to tell her, we're in the south. It's a roll-in, stocks full of them. Roll-in, stock, roll-in, um, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. <laughs> she, she didn't like that and said uh, I didn't articulate it properly. Oh. Uh, articulate the type of train with one or more engine units. Yes, ah. of course, as we all know. Stop it now, or with this axle box your head in. Oh. An axle box is the housing that holds the axle bearings on a rail vehicle. See, we're learning and we're laughing. <laughs> Ballast, that ballast, that ballast, I thought. I ought to stop soon or she'll boil her head off. Bo boil her, like a steam truck. Yeah. You see, Linda. See, see Linda, cylinder. Yeah. <laughs> Two jokes on one name. Um, I need to express myself, but just to be kind, as I can gauge your reaction, I really think I ought to stop. As I think we can all agree, puns 
I mean, they're not my forte, they are not my go-to comedy mood. It's what I do on the side. In fact, siding, 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 fact, I don't even really like them myself. Uh, and if I'm not careful, I could find myself going in a circle and district rules, circle, circle, district, rules of the podcast mean I have to stop soon. Um, looking at the audience, I see all the bored faces. All the bored, all the bored faces. I haven't even had a chance to talk about myself yet. But, as, as you're so keen to know, if I were to describe my sexuality, my main characteristic, and my favourite dance style in one word each, I'd have to say metro, polite, and line. Metro, polite, and line. Metro, It was a long journey, and I think you'll all agree it was worth it. <laughs> anyway, um, that was just about George Stevenson on this day in history, uh, and apologies for derailing the show. Oh. Uh, 25th of July 1965, Bob Dylan went electric at the Newport Folk Festival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, still, still Even now, yeah. it signalled a major change in folk and rock music. Dylan was positively received at the 1963 and 1964 Newport Folk Festivals, although there was some criticism of his 1964 performance. One critic writing that uh, being stoned had rarely, rarely prevented his giving winning performances, but he was clearly out of control. By 1965, Bob Dylan was the leading songwriter of the American folk music revival. The response to his albums, the freewheeling Bob Dylan and the times they were changing, led the media to label him the spokesman of a generation. In March of that year, Dylan had released his fifth album, Bringing It All Back Home. Side one featured Dylan backed by an electric band, while side two featured Dylan accompanying himself on acoustic guitar. On the 20th of July, Dylan released his single Like a Rolling Stone, featuring a rock sound. And on 25th of July, Dylan played electric at Newport, marking, uh, making an apparently spontaneous decision after being irritated by some remarks ma made by the festival organiser, Alan Lomax. Some sections of the audience booed Dylan's performance, perhaps as much upset by the poor sound quality and the short set than the fact that it was electric. Uh, one commentator said that Dylan had electrified one half of the audience and electrocuted the other. <laughs> <laughs> Leading members of the folk movement criticised Dylan for this and for moving away from political songwriting. Uh, Dylan returned to the stage later on the same evening and performed two songs on acoustic guitar for the audience, Mr Tambourine Man, and then, as his farewell to Newport, it's all over now, baby blue. The crowd applauded and called for more. But Dylan did not return to the Newport Festival for 37 years. In an enigmatic gesture, Dylan performed at Newport in 2002, sporting a wig and fake beard. And that's my segue. Uh, Izzy Lawrence is a writer, comedian, podcaster and history presenter. She co-hosts BBC Radio 4's flagship show Making History with Tom Holland and performs bespoke history shows at events for the British Science Festival, the British Museum, Royal Society, Ashmolean and many others. She has her own history podcasts uh, called the British Museum Membercast and the Z-List Deadlist. And if I may just say as well, Izzy's first novel, a historic children's fiction book called The Unstoppable, uh, Letty Peg. I've got that yeah. nice. Is uh, due to be released next year. Boom. So, over to Izzy. I want to make some notes on what has been said. 
Right, because what has been said already is very exciting. One, right, we haven't heard anything about Nelson, which very much annoys me, because on this day is the day that Nelson got his arm shot off, which is pretty good. He didn't actually get it shot off, he got it shot. And then he went back to the boat and he said, oh, get rid of this useless thing. And uh, he didn't mean it because he wanted to keep it, but they didn't, they dropped it over the side. And that was him trying to... This all happened, by the way, in Tenerife. And it's, a sun, it's true, this is where it happened. It was in Tenerife and that's where it happened. And to this day, British people celebrate this momentous occasion by not getting armless, but certainly getting legless. <laughs> hey, cool. Um, also, we've, we spoke about Mao crossing. Um, now, dictators doing spectacular things is amazing. The best one you'll ever find is King Shuggy of Ur, right? This is before the domestication of the horse. He ran a kingdom entirely on foot, and he ran from Ipper to Ur and back again in a day. That is 200 miles. How do we know this? Because he wrote about it. <laughs> He's like, I am amazing. Watch me. I am faster than the wild ass. Uh, that's what he did right, so that, that is also true. Um, also, I want to make a note, I very much doubt that Mary I did not get along with her husband very well, because her mum was called Catherine of Aragon. Aragon now is not an official country anymore, but is in Spain, so the fact that she wouldn't know any Spanish is ridiculous. It was Mary Queen of Scots who didn't know English, she only spoke French, it's weird. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know a lot of useless facts. One of the main facts I do know about this day, and this isn't very funny, but I don't because you all need to know about it. Who here has heard of James Barry? Yes. Right. Yes. yes, what? Thank you, thank you, sir. Because on this day, he died, okay? <laughs> James, no, it's not a good thing. It's not, good. It's, not, it's not a good thing that he died. Right, we know this, because um, basically, what you have to imagine is you are, and historically, this is what we know her as, a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and you turn up at this doctor's, right? Because you're turning up at this doctor's and you're knocking on the door and you've got this amazing bit of gossip because it is your job to prepare bodies ready for burial. This is your job. And what, what's happened is this, this other doctor, James Barry, has died of the shits. That's what's happened. Died of the shits. He's told everybody, right, not to, like, you know, uncover or do anything to his body. Told not to do anything to his body so he can be prepared for burial. Right? And you've gone along and you know you don't know this, you just give them a load of sheets with a corpse in it, you do what you do, you strip them off, you wash the hose down the body, you do a bit of scraping, stick a few you know, fillings if they've got them. And, uh, but what you notice is, there's something wrong with this body, so you go and knock on this other doctor's door and say, Oi, oi, I want, if you want this to come out, right, if you, if you mind this coming out, I want cash. I want cash, and otherwise I'm going to tell everybody. And the doctor goes and tells you, you can tell everybody. James Barry didn't have any family, it's fine, it's not a scandal. And you have to say, oi, this James Barry, James Barry, some doctor you are, a pretty doctor you are, James Barry's a girl, not a real girl, has had kids. I recognise the stretch marks, has had kids. And James Barry, since 1865, how can a woman be like, not just like any old like normal little doctor, but like, like the inspector of hospitals, right, and being at Crimea, that's an important battle, Crimea, but that's like big war, Crimea, well, that's one with all the like, you know, the wooliness, you know, it's all the woolly, woolly garments, it's Balaclava and, you know, Lord Cardigan, right, there's that one, it's a big one, charge of the light brigade, so, you know, proper, right, this is the, this is the doctor who in South Africa was like commanding of the, you know, like all of the, changed the entire hospital system in South Africa, like amazing stuff, like, like made everybody a lot healthier. Not only that, when they were like, when this doctor moved on, four men, 
men took their place, right? This Dr. James Barry, four men couldn't do it, had to hire another one, right? A huge workload, this doctor did. This doctor performed the first cesarean section that was successful. And by the way of which I mean successful, yeah. Support the baby's lives. There's been cesarean session where the baby lives, but also the vessel. What's that? Oh yeah, a woman, right? That, <laughs> right? To this day, to this day, not like 30 and they just thought she was imperfect but nobody nobody actually questioned her because in those days if you wore the costume of a man you were a man it was just unquestioned it's like if you wore a police officer's uniform you were a police officer why would you question it so her entire existence she dressed up as James Barry now there are people now saying oh was she a trans man Right, because what, what happened to Francesco got locked up in Spain, died. So she was just left going, I've got this amazing medical degree and I could go travel the world and have a career, or I could just go back to Cork and die. <laughs> so while she, a trans man, as in identified as a male, didn't really bother, had a squeaky voice, you know, didn't really try and convince anybody, or was she a woman who spent her entire life getting really knocked off with every single man that she encountered and yelling at them. She yelled at um, Florence Nightingale for not wearing her bonnet. Mm. Uh, oh yeah, she was in charge, she was a senior officer and Florence Nightingale was not wearing her bonnet in the Crimea and she got a right telling off. Um, but, point is, was, was, was this person actually identifying male or was it a woman stuck? Pretending, could you be a man for that long? You go mad, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, she kept her dresses as well. She had a trunk full of dresses that were. Anyway, it's really exciting. Her name was, um, or his name, however you want to say it, was Dr. James Barry. And basically, it's so modern, it's so of now, and died on the stone. Thank you to the panellists for all their pieces. So we're, uh, we're now going to launch into talking about the history of Reading. The town is one of the largest urban areas in the UK, if not the largest, which is actually still not a city. Apparently you've made three unsuccessful bids. Um, still not one, so that was 2000, 
which started just across the road. Yeah. Also, Queen Victoria wasn't alive in 2000, 2002, no. 2002. There is a slight technical detail. Yes. So the first evidence for Reading as a settlement dates from the 8th century, when uh, the town came to be known as Reddingham. It evidently grew in self-confidence. Drop the um and became Reading. In the mid-19th century, the town was famous for the three Bs, or I may be correct to tell you, the three Bs of beer, such so Simmons Brewery, Biscuits, Huntley and Palmer, and Bulbs, Sutton Seeds. Now, there was obviously plenty of demand from Reading residents who enjoyed going out for a few beers, uh, then returning home, wanting to eat some fresh biscuits, kept in a tin, and then doing some drunk gardening involving <laughs> herbs and uh, weed, maybe. So, uh, but apparently there are more than three bees, as I was educated earlier on today. That's, that, that's correct, yeah. because um, we're also famous, as you will know, if you live in Reading, for our coloured bricks, yeah. which we can see in our wonderful buildings, and we have 870-plus listed buildings in Reading. So although we have lost a few important ones, we still have many important ones. And the other one we are famous for is our printing and our books as I've pointed out to you today, and something you have in our family was printed in Reading. I opened it up to you because I've forgotten what it was. Books, bricks, biscuits, beer, biscuits, and, and bulbs. Buying new tra tapestry? Buying tapestry, yeah. Buy a yeah. Which I only found out which was, because um, I'm, I'm Irish, so I don't really know. I've, you've got such a quaint culture, it's fun. Um, <laughs> great crack. Um, the um, the Bayou Tapestry found out that the print that you have in Ready, and it was done prince. by. It was prints. We got printers! Sorry, it's embroidered. It was embroidered by Oprah Winfrey. Oh, yes, not a tapestry, um, it's an embroidery. And so. the, um, that, that's that's the, a so so comment there. The oh. only difference it has with oh. the original. Oh. The only difference it has the original is that. You're just needling me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, oh. let's keep the thread going. Oh. Oh. Get it out, Michael. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm going to string it out. I'm just. I'm Stop rolling the wall over Seamus' eyes. I'm sad that I'm causing all these parts. These are pearls, aren't they? These are pearls. Coming up. Okay. Um, Drop stitch that one. Okay. Oh. Come on. Get it done. <laughs> All right, everything's a landmine. Um, okay, so that the only difference I, was that the there's a load of the warriors in the bottom, and the original Bayou Tapestry, they're naked from the waist down. But in the Reading one, they have trousers on. No, 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 underpants. Underpants. They have white okay. And it was seriously. Not, <laughs> and not because the, the the embroiderers, the women who are embroidering it, not because of their sensitivities. The um, the print that they received to work off had the underpants already put on, so they they had, they would have been perfectly happy to kind of sew lilies and stuff like that. They're down with historical accuracy, but to keep their, to, to protect their sensibilities, the image that they were given had underpants on. Yeah, I think the women of Reading are definitely familiar with the palace symbol. If anybody's been to any of the nightclub bathrooms <laughs> and seen the scrawlings on the wall. And the phone numbers. <laughs> Nobody here goes clubbing, but um, revolution is just that. There are anyway. Don't go clubbing. There's a reason. You're just spinning a yarn now. Oh. You have to remember that it was the sensitive ladies from Stoke. Or oh. Leak. The leak. Did yes, the leak. By a tapestry, and it was bought and given to Reading. Oh. Ah. Other B. Let's find more bees about Reading. Yeah, more bees. Or not. Oh my right, here's here's another, another little factoid. Uh, went past the grave today of 24-year-old Henry West. 
he is buried in St Lawrence's graveyard. He died in a freak accident in March 1840. He was working on the station roof, attending to the station lantern when he was blown off, carrying... That's, that's what it said. I'm setting this up for you. Uh, he was carried 60 metres and discovered in a trench. Now, the blowing off was weather-related and not due to an excess of beer and biscuit. Uh, there is a brass plaque at Platform 7, apparently, at Reading Station, which I, I didn't check out, so I should have done, in his memory. So, yeah. the, Anything on blowing off? The, the most amazing thing about that is um, when his body was picked up and discovered, Nobody who discovered him was qualified enough to say whether he was dead or not. So they carried him, they carried him through the town to what used to be Yibor's head, which was known as the Yibor's bed, um, plonked him down at the table of people who had just gone in for a lunch trying to drink, and then somebody was sent off to find a doctor. How long it took them to get a doctor, but could you imagine eating or drinking in a pub like this and somebody just comes along, plonks a body down on your thing and said, look after it for a while while we go and find a doctor. Of course I can imagine that. I grew up in Dublin. <laughs> I love the idea of it's not to try to diagnose what was wrong with him, it's to diagnose whether he's alive or dead. That's why like, like drowning victims, one of the things to resurrect a drowning victim is literally you're meant to blow smoke up their ass. That is not a thing. That is literally a cure for drowning. It's because you can have like cure for drowning. Yeah, no, seriously. They had smoke stations where they drag people out the Thames and stuff to blow smoke up their ass. I think I'd rather remain drowned. <laughs> I'm jumping in the Thames now. It sounds like fun. But it's so hard to tell if somebody that is why you get all of the coffins with the scratches on the inside. It's because people go into comas and you, it doesn't look like they're breathing very much and they're very irregular heartbeats if ever and can you really tell and that's why you wake up in a coffin and they're scratching the worst one they're doing all of the lines um tom tom holland of um, of radio form um uh, he told me this because they were doing they, they're basically going through crossrail they've been digging up old victorian graveyards and they've been playing great games the academics have because they've been going oh we'll get the bodies you keep the lid and we'll oh, investigate the bodies and see what happened and that sort of thing and then they can identify and cross-reference the information and see if their science is any good so it's great for the science however they have found a few coffins where somebody has given birth underground oh, oh my god they don't, they die. I mean, there's not much to do. I know, it's enough to do that. You know, that's the way to go, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, if you're on your deathbed, it's not going to be as bad as that, I promise. I was going to, just because Izzy mentioned something fascinating earlier, and I thought Terry would know more about it. I never knew it. This is so dark. I didn't know there was a serial killer in Cavisham. Yeah. Oh my yes. word. I've, only, I've lived here 10 years and nobody told I used to live in Cavisham as well. I want to know more. Well, well I'm only small the loose. That's the first question that I have. Right. Amelia Dyer was her name. And I was invited by Reading Library to do a special crime walk about in June, which I'm repeating on the 23rd of November, but it's nearly sold out. And um, it's absolutely amazing. She came from Bristol originally, she was a nurse, and she was known as the angel maker. She used to call herself as an angel maker. Now, it is believed she killed a minimum of 100 children, babies, and she might have killed as many as 400, and she is alleged to be the biggest serial killer that's ever existed in the world. And they found her, which was quite interesting, 
because uh, she lived in Caversham and then she moved to Kensington Road in Reading. And I felt when you touched me there, I was like, you might know her. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I know, she didn't have any connections with Arthur, but we won't know about that. She um, was a nurse, there's a good potential. But what they did, they started dragging up some baby bodies in, in the Thames around Caversham Lot. And one of the baby's bodies tied round it was a piece of white linen which had Helis on it, which used to be our department store before it turned into John Lewis. And they traced back from the material. Now these are days before forensic scientists we have now that it was sold by Helis. And one of the persons who brought that was Amelia Dyer. And what they did was to actually get her into a honey trap, they sent a lady uh, to appear to be, because what she did was she posed as one half of a childless couple or as an intermediary to find children for childless couples and she would charge these people either an ongoing thing to look after their children to be given to a childless couple and they sent this lady who was an actual police officer, one of the early lady police officers, to actually go round and act as a person who wanted a baby to knock on the door to establish she was in the house and then in the evening two officers turned up to take her away. But one most remarkable, but I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell you that. The trial of her, when she was trialled, changed almost our criminal system because she was sentenced to be hung and she was hung. But she was also the chief witness against her daughter who was going to be sentenced for conspiracy. And the court tried to put a subpoena on her while she was in prison, and the prison refused to accept the subpoena because nothing in those days could stop somebody being hung by the date they would become to be hung other than a royal pardon. So we never know whether her daughter was involved or not because she was hung before her daughter's trial actually came to court, and she was the only witness for the Crown Prosecution. Wow. 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 That is a truly horrific story, but isn't it great that Reading's number one in something? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we've got a bit of an inferiority complex here, even our bio-tapestry is not real, but yeah. oh my god, number one so in baby death. What <laughs> dates are these? Do we know roughly? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was about between 1870 to about 1890-ish. Oh, no, something around no, so much better. <laughs> not, not, not to minimise this, but she sounds like a strong player for serial killer top trumps. That, that exists, actually. I'm sorry that I know that. So who's who's in the rest of the pack, James? Um, like Dahmer and... Uh, yeah, just like BTK. I'm, don't make me list all serial killers, because it's like, being recorded. Um, yeah. so, so we've got beer, biscuits, and baby oh, cakes for life. Uh, uh, here's a little factoid, I'm sure this will produce some groans, uh, but Tony Blair and his wife-to-be Sherry Booth apparently did much of their courting by oh. the Kennet in Newtown near the Gasworks. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a theme forming here, isn't there? <laughs> Blowing off Gasworks beer. Um, yeah. They didn't get as far as Fulbury Gardens in Richards. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> it is now. Yes. They got off the stop before Paddington. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the other one that I found just in the enjoyment of uh, Reading history, so Reading has the first ever female professor. 
uh, Edith Morley. Morley. Edith Morley, yeah. yes. Fascinating, because she, um, she gradu graduated from Oxford in 1899. At that time, as a woman, you couldn't, you wouldn't get a degree. And she missed it by six years. It was 1905, because I think Edinburgh gave the first female degree in 1899. And then Oxford, it's one of those things that Oxford goes, I know we were backward, but we did it before Cambridge. Because um, <laughs> Cambridge got it in 1910. You know, we were, were only slightly more progressive, but still. Um, and so she came here to get her first professorship. And like, she was an early member of Fabian Society. Yes, I'm sure you know a lot. And also she was, what I loved about her was that um, she wouldn't pay her taxes because she said, I'm not allowed to vote. No taxation without representation. So therefore, yeah, therefore, if I'm not a human being, I don't pay taxes. And then on one of the census, and you know about this yeah. census, is that she wouldn't take part in the census, and her and one of the other suffragettes, suffragettes, suffragettes. Suffragettes, they did, you know, they suffragettes. They were very good Canadian comedy duo. They, her and one of the other suffragettes, just walked the streets all night to the census taker. They didn't just walk streets. Oh, yes, this is all yours. Okay, so, while engaging, you know, the lady, the horse lady, she spent the night in the Houses of Parliament, did get caught annoyingly, but that's pretty cool. But the whole idea was they're going to completely, this is in my book, The Unstoppable Letty. Out with Bloomsbury, February. But but um, what they what they did, what the subjects? Because everybody thinks the subjects are oh, they were they starved themselves and they were really noble and they threw it and they killed themselves in front of horses. No, no, they were mad. Okay, they used to do things like they'd hold big things where they would like you know in in, in, in the swing baths they would do speeches in full speech on the edge of the diving board and then they dive in and people throw money at them. Right? They would and like the, the night of the census um, in. The Second of April, um, uh, nineteen eleven. Um, they spent the entire night uh, roller skating. <laughs> so they basically it could be home because if you were home, you had to say you were home. So it had to be somewhere that wouldn't be censored. And so they went to roller skating, and then all you know, a lot of them went to a vegetarian cafe because most of them were vegetarians. And uh, they just hang out there for a bit, and then they went roller skating again. And that, that's how they avoided the census. And it was illegal; they could have been prosecuted. Lots of them, like Sophia Singh, they just wrote, you know, exactly as you said, um, you know, if I don't count, you don't get to count me, you know. So mm. to, uh, I think that mm. is the general rule of the suffragettes. <laughs> 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 <It's a mm. laughs> can't she do it, but it's so cool. Like, if you told kids that the subjects were roller skating, that is a hell of a lot more, you know, like, woohoo, up the women than, you know, death and the meekness and getting beaten up by the cops. But they also did jiu-jitsu. Two, two other things about Edith Morley. Yeah. I want to know. Um, she received, I think it was an MBE rather than an OBE, mm -hmm. for setting up uh, the Belgian refugee. Refugees. After the... Uh, Where Poirot war. comes from. And she also <laughs> was banned from going within 200 yards of this railway station when the Prime Minister at the time, or Balfour, passed through the station, as all the suffragettes in Reading were, in case they attacked him or blew him up. It was literally, yeah. We were, like, suffragettes proper dangerous. We weren't allowed in the British Museum. British Museum banned all women. In order to be a woman and visit the British Museum, you had to have a note from a gentleman. <laughs> Saying you were trustworthy. It was, yeah. The we're old, proper dangerous the British, the British Museum is an active crime scene as it is. Yes! yes. <laughs> I, like to, I have in the British Museum, and I work for them, I have called it uh, the Finders Keepers Museum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, also, the, another thing that she did, which is really interesting, is that she used to do improvisation classes. 
No, she didn't, but I just wanted to get a shameless plug in. <laughs> I teach improvisation classes every Wednesday night here. So biscuits, beer, baby killers, and bullshit. <laughs> the, um, the only thing I like about the suffragettes was that there was a few of them, like, you know, when we think of, you know, the noble kind of, you know, um, uh, passive uh, and um, pacifist, like, there was a few of them that would, like, baseball bats in their skirts. Indian was, Yeah, they had, like, they had a, a, a kind of a, a, a bodyguard, but also, they didn't do jiu-jitsu, they did a thing called Bart Jitsu, yeah. which no, is no, Bart Jitsu! Which was that in, um, was Sorry, the Japanese kind of, the Japanese had the, you know, that the, the cultural lockdown for years, and when they opened it up, they had this jiu-jitsu master, this kind of martial arts master who came out, and it was like a roving show. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan's... Um, Mikado. Mikado.